We're uh, looking at this series called Glorious, and uh, we are attempting to speak of the glory of God. We're, we're, we're attempting to describe and engage with, and to the best of our abilities, get our hearts, our minds, and our heads round Almighty God. And it feels like, you know, I feel like an ant trying to describe the Mona Lisa. You know, it, where do you begin? We have no frames of reference. It's difficult, and, and the, I think the burden for that has come, as I said a couple of weeks ago, and I think Dan um, reiterated last week, in that, you know, the church has done a pretty good job over the, the church, not just this church, the church has done a pretty good job over the last 20, 30 years of really focusing on Jesus, and sh so we should, and so shall we ever do, because as as as. Peter, Jesus said to Philip, Philip said, Father, you know, he said, Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And in a sense, that's all you need to know. And, and we need to hold on to that. But with this has come a familiarity which sometimes, in my opinion, my humble opinion, crosses a line. We kind of, you know, think... We, we, we have a tendency to, to think that God's our mate and he's a lovely, doddery old guy with big smiles and a gentleman and all these things we sort of describe. And, and, and there's a slight, oh, it's beginning to bother me, a slight over-familiarity. We are dealing with El Shaddai, the God, God Almighty. And in fact, in the scriptures, there are many, many, many descriptions of encounters, particularly through the prophets, with God, and God the Father is totally awesome. So what we're trying to do is we're, we're trying to capture a little bit of that, not lose any of the tenderness and the intimacy that we have with Jesus, but trying to recalibrate slightly so that we understand that, that actually what Jesus has done is all the more remarkable, because what he has done is he's, he's put in us, us in a place of favor and engagement with God the Father. So that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to gasp, as it were, at the awesome wonder of God, whilst at the same time falling on our knees and saying, oh, Jesus, you have done wonderful things for me. So let me pray, and uh, we, will, uh, we will have a go at this, shall we? Oh, Lord, Holy Spirit, boy, uh, you know how, well, Myself and Richard and Dennis have been feeling about this series. Uh, Lord, we need your help, Holy Spirit, to bring glory to the Father and to commend the, the Father to us, not as we would have him be, but as he truly is. So, Lord Holy Spirit, would you speak to us? May you give us revelation, open our eyes to see the glory of the King. Lord God, uh, if that were possible, may we be, t may we be uh, just lost in wonder, love, and praise. May we be not just challenged, but changed today as, as Rich prayed so well. So help us now, in Jesus' name, amen. And uh, Matt, I'm not going to show that video clip, because I, I want to just major on this a bit. Thank you, mate. Okay, so would you turn with me, please, then, to uh, Ezekiel chapter 1. It'll come up on the screen, and this is, a, this is a passage and a half. Man, the book of Ezekiel. And talk about visions of God. You know, I think I'm calling this, this particular talk visions of God. 
Uh, and we're going to look at Ezekiel's encounter with God, the vision he has of God, or at least one of them, part of one of them, I should say. And, and I just want to, by way of, I mean, Den does a great job of putting things in context. I just want to put a little bit of context on this because I think you'll understand and appreciate it all the more. So just the, the first verse then says this, in my 30th year, this is Ezekiel speaking, in the fourth month of the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kebar River, the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. What we have here then is a situation where the Israelites have been completely decimated the 12 tribes have been completely decimated over the course of 140 odd years. The 10 northern tribes, and these are all the, when I say the tribes, the 12 tribes that came out of, Israel, out of Egypt and settled in the promised land. 10 of the northern tribes, 130 odd years previously, were carried off into exile and nothing was ever heard of them again. Complete disaster, wiped from the face of the map. But there were two tribes Judah and Benjamin, it was Benjamin, wasn't it? Yeah, Judah and Benjamin that were left in the south and they actually thought that although you know, uh, things were not going well, although the prophets were railing at them, the thing that they had that nobody else had was that they had the city of Jerusalem and the temple in the Jerusalem and God had said, this is my home and this is where I will meet with my people and I think it led to a certain complacency. You know, people of God, beware of complacency. And it led to a certain complacency. And their kings, unfortunately, following on from Solomon, who began, I suppose, to, to sow the rot, as it were, to, to, to foster the rot, they began to dally with foreign gods. As you probably know, Solomon married many, many foreign wives, uh, great political and diplomatic uh, success as a result, forged treaties, and that was the way you did it. But they, he allowed the wives to bring their religion, and it, it, it tainted and contaminated the people of Israel. Anyway, it ends up with, at this point in time, five years previously to this vision, the unthinkable happens, and the children of Judah, the, the two remaining tribes, are taken off in exile to Babylon. And what the Babylonians used to do was that they would divide the communities up, they would destroy their gods, because many of you recall that this wasn't just a battle of nations, this was a battle of gods against gods. So what was really being communicated here was that the Babylonian gods were better than Yahweh, the God of Israel, and they overran the southern kingdoms, they carried them off into exile, and then Actually, once they'd gone off into exile, what, what the Babylonians did was that they broke the community up, they broke the exiles off, and they sort of planted them in little communities, and then basically they let them get on with it. You know, hence, you know, Jeremiah was a contemporary of all of this, and he was saying, look, it is what it is. God says, settle down, marry your daughters off, you know, build businesses, da-da-da-da, pray for the, you know, that's the only way this is going to work out. And he got a lot of short shrift for his prophetic words there. So here they are, this community, and they're still in shock. I mean, Psalm, um, is it, what is it, 147, isn't it? By the rivers of Babylon. I don't want to get lost in all of this, but, 
But just to give you a little uh, taste of it, 137, I think it is, isn't it? Yeah, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. You know, here they are, the exiles at the river Kaba. And this is, what this is the, the lament that they're singing. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. So there our captors asked for our songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy and said, sing us one of the songs of Zion, Zion being Jerusalem. This was an appalling situation they found themselves in. And frankly, it was going to get worse. They didn't know this yet. So they're in this place where God appears to have abandoned them. They are now scattered throughout Babylonia in a foreign land where these people are tormenting them, saying, come on, let's sing one of you. Let's, let's have a bit of a skip, a fancy bit of a dance. Come on, pick up your harp. Come on, give me a jig. And they're just hating this. And it's going to get worse because there's been a puppet king put in Jerusalem for the time being, and he ends up rebelling. And then five years beyond this, the temple is destroyed, completely destroyed. And all the precious artifacts, you know, Solomon's shields, which adorn the, 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 the inside, the place was covered in gold, just treated like so much scrap metal. The sea of bronze, this huge, great thing, Outside is just broken up for scrap. It's going to get worse. And it's at this point, it's at this point, and the timing is strategic, that Ezekiel has a vision. Because at this point, the people are saying, Where is God? You used to be religious, so explain. Tell me, where is God? Look at this. So the people are absolutely broken, and Ezekiel has a vision. So let's kind of wrestle with this. Now, I, I, I would encourage you, please, and we always try and do this, you know, if, you're, if, if what you get on a Sunday morning is, is what you think is going to feed you spiritually for the whole of, of your life, it just ain't. You've got to do homework. You've got to have your own secret history with God, you know, but I'm going to give you a bit of a pointer here, but there's more there more than I'm going to be able to share with you for you to dig out. So uh, let's have a little look. Ezekiel, um, let's look at Ezekiel 1, beginning at verse 4. And I'll, in fact, I've edited a bit and it'll come up on the screen. So, Matt, if you can do that. So it says here, Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 4, the vision begins. I looked, says Ezekiel, and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their forms were human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. On to verse 10. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a human being, and on the right-hand side, they had a face of a lion, and on the left, the face of an ox, each had the face of an eagle also. Such were their faces. They each had two wings spreading out upward, each wing touching that of this creature on either side. And each had two other wings covering its body. And each one went straight ahead wherever the spirit would go. And they would go without turning as they went. And the appearance of the living creatures were like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth. And, and among the creatures, it was bright and lightning flashed out of it. And the creatures went sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. And spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like something like a vault. 
sparkling like crystal and awesome, a huge vault. Under the vault, their wings were stretched out one to another, and each had two wings covering its body. And when the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. And when they stood still, they lowered their wings. I'm going to just pause there. The first thing to say about this is that later on in this passage, uh, Ezekiel refers to these creatures because there's two other visions of them, very similar. And he refers to them as cherubs. Now, describe, somebody, describe, describe a cherub to your, neighbor, to, your, to your neighbor here. Right, fat baby with improbable wings, yes. Uh, you know, all these, all these artists, you know, Renaissance artists and what have you, all the cherubs, Fliss and I were in Rome, you know, for a day just recently, and there's cherubs galore. And, 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 you know, they're all, they're all fat babies with these ridiculous little wings. I can just imagine the painter, you know, he was sort of, he's, he's been commissioned to do a thing with cherubs in it. He's got this piece of paper and he's looking at the, the, the book and he's got his palette, he's mixing up and he starts drawing this thing and he keeps looking at this and he goes, oh my giddy aunt, what? Oh, I'll just do a fat baby with some wings. <laughs> So forevermore, cherubs are fat babies with wings. Nowhere in the scriptures do you find fat babies with wings. Cherubs are terrifying. And there are in other versions, uh, in other accounts of cherubs, and they are pretty freaky. Now, Bible scholars get very excited about the four faces. You know, the Lion of Judah, that's the lion one. There's the man one. There's there's the uh, eagle, which is... uh, uh, Greece, you know, the ox, which is Rome or something like that. You know, you can spend hours g- going up, but, but what's the point, you know, really? They're just gruesome. Other Bible scholars have talked about, you know, the four, the four apostles, you know. Matthew the lion, John is the eagle, Mark is the ox, and Luke is the, ma- the, the man, the person. You know, you know I think, well, it's, you know, it's fun, it's interesting, maybe you get something out of it. I don't really think that's the point. What these guys are doing is setting the scene. You know, if you saw these, you, you know, you're, you'd be flat on your face. I saw an angel once. I was terrified. Terrified. Fat babies with improbable wings, I ask you. But this isn't the end of it. This isn't the end of it. I mentioned Rome. Fliss and I, when we were in, we just went for a day to Rome. Boy, it was a long bus ride. Um, <laughs> and we were on the, on the coming back from a holiday, and we stopped there for a day. And uh, you know, you have to be selective about what you see. But the the place that actually really blew me away was the Cathedral Church of St. Ignatius. And if you get a chance to go to Rome, some of you may have seen it, but if you get a chance, go and see it. It's an interesting place. From the outside, it, by, by comparison with all the glories around in that city, it looks pretty, pretty bland, pretty low-key. A few steps up to a sort of a seemingly rather squat building with... Uh, you know, a few sort of columns and things. It really doesn't look like much. It's the home of the Jesuits. And immediately when I went inside, I liked this place. 
Now, yes, it's full of Baroque and gold and all the rest of it, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's an interesting place. What I immediately found interesting was the whole place is given over to a celebration and, 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 uh, and an encouragement to take the gospel to the, the continents of the world. And the, each column has you know, like Africa and North America and this kind of thing. Whereas a lot of the uh, other chapels and churches and cathedrals in Rome, you know, they're celebrations of you know, the Mother Mary and all this kind of stuff. But this was different. This was all about mission. But the thing that I want to get to say about this building was that when it was built, they wanted to make it big and build a big um, dome on the top like everything else. But the Pope of the day refused permission to do that, partly because it was going to block the view of St. Peter's and all sorts of stuff like that. And also he had a bit of a thing about the Jesuits who he was a bit scared of. So what they did was that they hired an artist. And, uh, 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 and they basically said, we can only take it up 60 meters or whatever it is, but we want you to do whatever you can do inside to give this place height. And so you go into this place and it's, you know, striking. But then you look at the ceiling. I actually tried to find a picture that would do it justice. It's impossible with all the wonders of digital for, uh, photography to, to, to make the point. But you go in and you look at the ceiling and there's a spot in the middle of the nave that if you stand up, you look and it is amazing. This guy was, a, was a, a, an expert in the art and science of perspective. So you've got the physical walls going up to the roof, and then he painted a whole other layer of columns and stuff, being absolutely meticulous about the laws of perspective. So you stand there, and it literally goes whoosh like that. And then at the top of that, there's cherubs and you know, fat babies with impossible wings and all sorts of stuff like that. But that isn't the end of it. Beyond that, there's the sky. And beyond that, in the distance, as it were, you see St. Ignatius and, and angelic beings. And beyond that, it goes on and on into infinity. And you stand there and you get like vertigo. It is so compelling and so authentic that you think, wow! The artist also just as painted a dome, which is a great, art, a great feat of perspective. So by doing that, they managed to thwart the, you know, the, the will of the Pope and made this glorious place. Do go and see it. St. Ignatian de Loyola. You can look it up on the internet. There are some little, little walkthroughs that will give you a sense of it. And I say all that to say this. In this vision, we've got the cherubs, in all of them, extraordinary and bizarre glory. Above them, we've got this vault. And in the, in the King James Version, it talks about chrysolite. It's a wonderful stone. It's like, whoa. You know, somebody used to be a Jew. I think, whoa, that must have been awesome. And then it comes to this. Verse 9. Then there came a voice from above the vault. Over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the vault, over their heads, was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli. Deep, rich blue with gold flecks in it. Wow. 
And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. And I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire. And that from down, that from there down, he looked like fire and brilliant light surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. And then I love this sort of closing thing, the last verse in chapter one. It says, this, Ezekiel says, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. Did you get that? This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. It's a bit like, here's a photograph of a painting which is a bit dark and dirty, and it's of somewhere in North America. Yeah, he, he's attempting to describe what he's seeing, but he knows that words cannot express because he lacks the reference points. So this is the best he can do. And at the end of it, he's not entirely sure he's looking at God because he says this is, the, this is the appearance of the glory of God. Now, this is an extraordinary vision, and it's meant to instill fear, awe, and wonder, and it has a desired effect. He falls to his face, on his face. He falls on his face. Now, at this point, what happens is that the Lord, the Spirit of God says, get up, get up, get up. And when you read these kind of stories, as I said, I think, in the first week, it seems that for most people, they end up flat on their face. Flat on their face. And what Ezekiel now gets, what he hears from the Lord, is that God is calling him to be a prophetic watchman. And as you read on beyond this, you begin to see the the prophetic actions, not just words, he has to do things. You know, uh, the prophecy is not just speaking words. There are prophetic actions that he has to do to speak to the remnant. And basically, he's asking, he's answering the question that is on all of their lips. Why has this happened to us? Why are we in this state? Why is, the, why is it that the Babylonian gods are more powerful than Yahweh? In fact, the way it turns out is, is entirely different. It's not that at all. And, and actually, Ezekiel is told it is going to get worse before it's going to get better. Where is God? How could he allow this to happen? If there was a God, etc., etc. Now, the thing I find so fascinating with this is that these are the kind of conversations I have today. There were 11 of us in a pub having dinner, lots of hilarity and banter and bad language, I have to say, as well, from the car guys. And then one of the guys, he just pipes up and he says to me, he said, I came to your car show. And by the way, they loved it. But he said, I felt intimidated. And the whole room went quiet. It wasn't like we were next door to one another. He, he said, I felt intimidated. I said, why do you feel intimidated? And so he told me why he felt intimidated. Just felt insecure and out of his depth. And then he, he owned up. He said, well, you know, I can't believe. I, I, I see what you, you do. And what, what, he says, what unnerves me is you seem so sure. You all seem so sure. But I don't get it at all. Now, what I didn't know was his mother had died 10 days previously. 
So there was, there was, I could feel the heat and the energy. You know, where is your God? What's this God thing about? If God was here, why did he let my mum die? Etc., etc., etc. There's another story there where I had a breakthrough with that guy and just, but anyway, wherever. So, what happens here then is that the Lord God begins to explain, explain to Ezekiel why this has come about. It's not like they weren't warned, they just didn't pay attention. And so let's just turn now, I'm nearly getting on okay. Turn now to Ezekiel chapter 8, verses 6 to 10 and verse 12 too. He says this, the Lord says to Ezekiel, he said, son of man, and he's taken him to the temple. Do you see what they are doing? The utterly detestable things the Israelites are doing here. Things that will drive me far from my sanctuary. But you will see the things that are even more detestable. Then he brought me to the entrance of the court. And I looked and I saw a hole in the wall. This is the temple, by the way. A hole in the wall. I looked and there was a hole in the wall. And he said to me, son of man, now dig into the wall. So I dug into the wall and I saw a doorway there. He said to me, go in and see the wicked and detestable things that they are doing. So I went in and looked and I saw betrayed all over the walls kinds of crawling things and unclean animals and all the idols of Israel. This is in the temple, the sacred place. Verse 12, he said to me, son of man, have you seen what the elders of Israel are doing in the darkness, each at the shrine of his own idol? And they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. You see, the point is that These guys, people of God, and it is the people of God, it's not just Israel, because as I said right at the beginning, 10 tribes have already gone, so it's just two tribes left. The people of God, what they are doing in secret, where they say, God will not see, the Lord has forsaken us, this has driven God away. This has driven God away. You see, I think that embedded in this strange and bizarre and wonderful and extraordinary and disconcerting and unsettling word is something that still speaks to God's people today. God has not abandoned us. Frankly, I don't feel abandoned at the moment, but I have felt abandoned. God has not abandoned us. We have driven him away. Could that be true in the 21st century of Western culture? Could that be true of this world? Could that be true of Europe? Could that be true of this nation? That God has not abandoned us, but that we've driven him away. And if there's a message for us as the people of God at this time, if we're going to be serious about coming of age, And we're working on that theme. We're chewing on that theme this year. It's time to finish the house. It's time to examine our hearts. What do I mean finish the house? Well, you know, Flissy and I, we moved uh, in November into Edelsborough. And for the first six months, we went at it decorating and all this kind of stuff. If I wasn't here, I was at home decorating, you know, how it goes. And then Fliss would change her mind, I'd be decorating again, you know. 
Do you want to stand up and just say it's all a lie? <laughs> My precious wife. But after about six months or so, you begin to think, oh boy, Friday, day off, I've got to decorate, you know. And now there's lots of stuff that isn't finished. Now, hands up here, guys, this is a guy's thing. I'm not going to let the ladies do it, otherwise it'll be a riot. If, if, if you haven't quite finished the decorating or quite finished the plumbing or the job or whatever it is in the house yet, yeah, come on, fess up. Yeah, look at you. Yeah, yeah. We start things, but we don't always finish them. You know, I've got some stuff still to do. The truth is that we've made a good start as followers of Jesus, the Church of Jesus Christ. And I mean, I'm proud. You know how proud I am of all you guys. And 30 years of what we've accomplished from ground zero here is just extraordinary, and it wouldn't have happened without God. But there is a sense in which we've got to finish the task. We may be tired, we may be a bit weary and all the rest of it. We may be, that's fair. But the reality is, both externally in this building and and internally, we've got to examine our hearts again. We cannot afford to carry secret sin in the very sanctuary, the very temple of the place where 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 we carry within us the Spirit of God, the Lord Jesus himself. Ezekiel it was who said, I'm going to put a new heart in you, a heart of flesh. I'm going to take out the heart of stone and put a heart of flesh in you. But the truth of the matter is, are we saying about that critical spirit, that unforgiveness, that bitterness, that resentment, that jealousy, that secret sin of pornography? Are we saying about the arrogance and pride? Are we saying about the judgment that we still carry for individuals? be it class, color, whatever, are we still saying, or are we kidding ourselves and saying, God doesn't see. I'm doing everything else. The priests are worshiping in the temple, it's just that they have their own little thing going on the side too. I believe in this weird, wacky, bizarre, wonderful, extraordinary, disconcerting word that is Ezekiel that there is a message for us today, and it's this. The time for secret sins is over. God is coming to his house, and he's asking for it to be swept clean. Do you understand what I'm saying, church? Will you please nod? Uh, Otherwise, I'll go on another loop. We'll be here for another 45 minutes. (laughs) It is so important, this. It is not enough just to wash your face and not have a shower. It is not enough. You know, quick, okay, I'm ready. Come on, God, bless me. Because the truth of the matter is, the truth of the matter is this, that the holiness of God, when we begin to grapple with and perceive and understand the holiness of God, it makes sin unbearable. We can only bear sin and continue in sin if we, if we stay far off. But the moment we press on in to get close, the moment we begin to welcome God in as he truly is and not as we would like him to be, sin becomes unbearable. 
it is time as we come of age to clean house. Let's all stand. Can I have the band back up? Let's just pray. Lord, just when we think we've arrived, we find that there's still more to, more, more, more to go. Just when we think we know you, and we do know you, because you've invited and revealed yourself to us, we find there's more of you than perhaps we first understood. Just when we have come to you and sought your forgiveness and received you as our Savior, we think that's it, we're sorted now, that's the old faith and eternity thing resolved, but the, that isn't, it's just the beginning. And Lord God, we pray that you would be, reveal yourself to us as you would want to be, and that we would be able to engage with you insofar as flesh and blood can engage with you, without feeling shame and fear and having to run from the light. Oh God, forgive us. Lord, forgive me. Lord, wash me clean. Help me to know you as you would be known. Help us as a community to know God absolutely, 100%, as you can be known to human beings. We don't want anything less. And so, Lord God, we pray that you would speak this coming week as we read and reflect and we pray about those secret sins. May we confess them. May we call them what they are, sin. Where we may to make amends, may we, where we need to confess to others, may we do that so that we might clean the house and be holy and solely devoted to you. And everyone said, Amen.